0: Hey, we are right now. Uh, if you got your Bibles, you can open them up, get them ready. We uh, we've got the privilege today of having uh, another overseer of Anchor Church here with us, sharing. Um, real quick before Pastor Micah comes up, I want to explain to everybody once again that uh, our overseers here at Anchor Church are different than our elders and are different than our board of directors. Our overseers are essentially in existence because we are non-denominational. We don't have like a, a district to oversee to provide authority and accountability, and so. We we created uh, this, this structure that has the overseers. And overseers, um, on a day-to-day basis, the overseers have no decision-making power for the church. They're not telling us what to do, who to hire, what to, like, they are simply day-to-day, uh, a board that uh, is a resource for wisdom, for counsel, for prayer. Even just this week, I sent an email to the overseers, hey, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to handle this situation well. What's your experience? What your What's your wisdom in this? And it's just a board that has a lot more experience and wisdom than I have that I continually go to for support and encouragement and, uh, and, and seek their counsel in that. Uh, their other, maybe, maybe more important role is, uh, if there's ever a question with the lead pastor, which happens to be me at this stage of the church, uh, the, if there's any question in morality, if there's any question in theology, in finances, in leadership, in the way that he's dressing, I don't know, anything across the board. If there's concerns, uh, the elders of our church have direct access to the overseers, and if the overseers get addressed with, hey, we got this concern, the overseers have absolute authority over the lead pastor if there should be any discipline, including firing, um, and so so the overseers are the people that that keep the lead pastor, keep me in check. If there's ever discipline or firing that needs to take place because of poor leadership decisions or anything else, uh, that exists. And so it's really valuable for us to once a year have our overseers in the house uh, to get to see you, get to know you a little bit better, uh, see what's going on within the church. But it's also really important for us that, uh, you get to hear from and you get to see those that are speaking wisdom into to our team, those who are, are holding a position of authority and accountability within our church. And a couple weeks ago, we had Pastor Alex J. from Billings in the house. Uh, today, we have Pastor Micah Dalby, who's going to come up in just a moment. Uh, he is currently the lead pastor up at Missoula Alliance Church and uh, has been serving faithfully in this community for uh, a long time and uh, has been incredibly faithful, incredibly kingdom-minded, incredibly generous. And I just want to say for any anchor- Anchor Church, Pastor Micah and his entire team up up at Missoula Alliance Church have been endlessly encouraging, generous, and supportive. uh, Before Anchor Church had a name, we actually announced the name Anchor Church in their chapel with a small group of people that they just allowed us to use their building. We've been occupying offices up at their space, uh, free of charge, we bought them two coffees. We'll buy you a third, I promise. Uh, we're a little overdue. We just had our third anniversary. They get one coffee a year and, uh, (laughs) but they're generous. They really are. Uh, we, have been so incredibly blessed by, by Pastor Micah, his family and Missoula Alliance Church. And so, uh, even if you've never met Pastor Micah, uh, being a part of Anchor Church, we've all benefited incredibly from him and from his church's generosity. Uh, Micah, I just want to say thank you for your friendship. Thank you for your support, your encouragement in so many different ways uh, over the years. And uh, we're excited to hear from you today. So, Anchor, if you are, Abe, would you please stand to your feet as we welcome and we honor Pastor Micah Dalby. That's a little bit close. Do you want me to move that back? Sure.
1: Thank you all so much. Wow. That was a warm welcome and a generous introduction. Uh, I cannot say how much I am so continually encouraged to be with this church. What a spirit-led, spirit-filled group of people um, to see God moving and just be able to enter in. Uh, Standing in the front row where in any other organization, that would be weird for me. Um, And just feeling like I'm one with you. I'm here with you. God is with us I'm just so encouraged, so um, thank you, and uh, my wife is the kids director up at Mac, and so she really wanted to be here today. She could not because uh, of some responsibilities there, um, but I just wanted to say congratulations um, the recently passing that three-year mile marker as a church, your anniversary service. Um, so encouraged to see all of the different statistics, to hear people stand up and say this past year God did this. Every time you guys do that, I think what that is the picture of what the church is supposed to be. It's not a group of paid people who put on an event. It's the body of Christ testifying to the goodness of God. And um, so that just, just always makes my heart come alive. I was so encouraged to watch that. Um, I came to Missoula eighteen years ago uh, to be part of a church plant discovery, and I remember how hard it was to pack in and pack out. I was the worship pastor at the time, and um, also though how exciting it was to see people coming to Christ and to see them rooted and grounded and anchored in faith in Christ. Um, but seeing that anniversary service, there was a statistic in that that stood out to me and not that I intended to really, uh, it just stayed with me. It percolated in my heart, and God used it in a really meaningful way. And I wanted to kind of share the fruit of that with, with you this morning. Um, at the time, we were concluding a 10-week series we are in um, as the church called A Better Story, talking about the, the story of God, how uh, do we find our place in God's story, how do we engage our culture, especially with so many competing, competing, confusing narratives. Um, And so the final message was what's coming for us, the last chapter, if you will. And I was overwhelmed with all of the possible things that I could talk about, right? Like the sequence of events and then you get people all stirred up because we disagree on some of those things. I was like, where am I going to focus here? And, And whenever that overwhelm comes on, I just sit and wait. And I say, Lord, you know what you want. And I was waiting when I ran across this statistic from your service. Uh, There was 44 of you shared that at least one person in your family started following Christ or returned to a life of following Christ. Uh, So many stats in that that could have stood out to me. That one, for some reason, stuck with me, and it reinforced something we see throughout Scripture and uh, something that also helped bring clarity to where I wanted to focus, Um, and it basically the truth that the Father isn't waiting for people to come to him. The Father is actively pursuing us. And we've been singing that, and we've been worshiping in light of that truth this morning. When Jesus interacted with that woman at the well, and she was asking Jesus, uh, basically, where do I go to find God? Jesus said, no, the Father is seeking worshipers. The Father came to find you, came to find you in the person of Jesus in that instance. But because that stat provided such inspiration and clarity for me, I thought it would be fitting to share a, a version of that message with you, because as I was preaching it to our church, I just thought of you guys and all that God is doing here. Basically, the premise of the message is the story of the Bible from the beginning to the end, from Genesis to Revelation, is God's undying commitment to make his home with us. That's the overarching narrative of the Bible for all the things that people might think of when they hear about the Bible or Christianity. Here's the rules. Here's the expectations. It is God's relentless pursuit of humanity and his desire to be at home with us. And I realize this may be a shift in our way of thinking about Christianity. For many of us, it's the idea that I'm born into this world. I have a choice of whether or not I am going to invite God into my life. The story of the Bible is fundamentally the opposite. Not us inviting God into our life, but God inviting us into his. Because if you think about it, God didn't have to make any of this. He didn't have to create any of this. And we say, oh, God is creative. True. There's thousands of ways he could have expressed creativity. Why did God create this beautifully, way over-the-top, illustrious garden and world where he placed humans to live, and then he walked with humans in that place? Why did he do that? The best answer I've been able to come up with is that God is relentlessly relational. I I was going to say this morning God is an extrovert, but I didn't want to discourage you introverts. Um... Be like, I I don't know if I can trust God anymore at this point. Um, But the reality is God is also the perfect introvert. He doesn't need any of us. But he wants us, and he continually finds ways to invite and to involve us in his life, in his world. God is relentlessly relational. And by the way, this characteristic was around long before humans were here. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image. Now, if you're reading the Bible and you believe in one God, which we do, this should cause you to pause. Who is us? I'm not going to give a message on the Trinity this morning, um, but there is much scripture that speaks to the presence of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all there together before we were here in perfect unity and joy at creation. In the very beginning of the Bible, it says the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters, the potential for change to bring order out of chaos. And then God said, let there be light, the speaking voice of God. Who's speaking? Well, if you fast forward to the New Testament, the book of John 1, verse 1, like Genesis 1, 1, it starts with the exact same words, creation language. John says, John says, in the beginning, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So there's this built-in mystery that Jesus was not only there with God in the beginning, but he is God, the speaking, creating God. And at Christmas, we celebrate that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, right? But he didn't come into existence in Bethlehem. Jesus was there in the beginning, and so there's the Spirit, there's the speaking voice of God, and then Paul beautifully articulates the Father's presence and role in creation. I love 1 Corinthians um, chapter 8, verse 6, one of my favorite verses. There is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. I love this language because if you were gonna uh, speak in movie language, if you're making a movie, the Father is the visionary, he's the writer. He's the one from whom all this came to be and for whom we exist. But then you also have the director, if you will, through whom the vision of the Father is carried out, through whom we were created and the book of Colossians says we are actively sustained in this moment by Jesus. But the point is, God has always been intrinsically relational before us. Which is why when Jesus prays for his church, his disciples in John 17, he prays that we would be one. He prays that we would be unified. And I love that the basis of that unity, he doesn't say, I pray that they would be one in their voting record. I pray that they would be one in the way they dress. I pray they would be one in in their racial profile. None of that. He never puts it on us to manufacture unity. He rather says, Father, I want them to experience what we have. I want them to be invited into our joy and inseparable oneness. We don't make it up. We respond to the invitation to enter in, to what God has always enjoyed in himself. So the story of humanity isn't us inviting God into our lives, but God inviting us into his to have his home with us. But if you've read the beginning of the Bible, the story takes a turn uh, for the worst. <laughs> At the beginning, it says that God blessed creation. He made his home with him, and then he blessed. It says uh, that the animals, he blessed humans, and the words he uses when he blesses is, be fruitful and multiply, spread out. But then Adam and Eve fast version of it, disobeyed God and brought curse into the world. Now, curse is a hard word for me. Whenever I hear curse, I picture someone angrily like punishing. Curse is simply the natural consequence of trying to find blessing apart from God. It's where God says, here's how to be blessed. I made you. I know you. It's like if uh, the maker of a canoe. Where should that canoe be? Probably near water. And it's the canoe saying, I'm going to go be in the desert, right? God says, here's how to be blessed. And when we say, no, I'm going to go seize blessing apart from you, the result is curse. Curse came into the world where the joy and the peace and the trust that we were made for was replaced by guilt and fear and shame. And friends, you don't need a sociological study to prove that those things are dominating in today's world. But this all ties back to the fact that we moved away from God. We moved away from the home he made for us. And that's what you see at the end of Genesis 3. After they sinned, God said, Behold, man has become like us. There that pronoun is again. Knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden. You don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you have ever been evicted? Kicked out of your home. Not a fun experience. And honestly, as a kid growing up hearing these words, I was just pictured this being harsh. God's like, you messed up, and I don't want you to live forever, so get out. I'm like, what is going on here? But then something occurred to me. Imagine that you learned this afternoon, you went back to your uh, home or your apartment, and you found out that there was asbestos. And there was mold, like dangerous mold or whatever, and there was radon. Any home inspectors, am I missing any of things I can add to this list? <laughs> you, get, you get back and you realize, do you want to keep living there? Probably not. See, God looked at the poisonous effects of sin and how it had affected his people, and he's like, the last thing I want is for them to live forever like this. And so God, honestly, in his mercy, drove us out. I do not want this to last forever. And then, obviously, the story of the Bible is written, and we see this pan out. But he drives us, drives them out of the garden. And it says he placed an angel to guard the way to the tree of life. And again, I picture like capture the flag, people play that like this angel's like, nope, nope, not gonna get it. Like stopping people from eating of this tree of life. And I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever. Like never really very inspired by that picture. But then I studied the word guard. It means exactly the opposite. It's the Hebrew word, which I'm not gonna try to say, um, but it means to keep open to preserve, to protect. Why? Because there's coming a time when we're going to be able to eat the way we were made to eat. He's protecting, he's preserving because there's coming a time when we're going to be back home. Ever since that first eviction notice, humans have been trying to get back. Humans have been trying to get back to they might not say God, heaven, home, whatever, but innocence, trust, peace relationships that don't implode. We, 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 humans, everyone longs for that. We were made for that. And that's kind of what I want to talk about with the rest of our uh, time here this morning is that along the way to this home, God has not just been waiting for us to find our way back home. He proves over and over in Scripture his determination to make his home with us. And I'll just share one example uh, from the Old Testament, one of the best examples is the tabernacle. It's this, it's this portable structure they built where God could meet with people. But what's interesting to notice is that this was not the people's idea. The people didn't wake up one day and said, you know, we've, we've, we need some spirituality in our life. We need a little more God. It was not their idea. It was 100% God's idea. Exodus 25, uh, God says to Moses, have the people make a sanctuary for me. Why? What's God's goal? So that I may live among them. You must build this tabernacle and its furnishings exactly according the pattern that I will show you. Now, just a couple things here to know. Tabernacle means to dwell with, to, to live with. And, and it struck me this week that that word means what it it's, it, it's called what it means. I mean, it's like if you opened up a burger joint and you called it Eat Burgers. Why do, what, what's, what do you do at that place? Eat burgers, like God didn't want any confusion about the primary purpose of that initial place of worship. It wasn't a place to go and try to feel good about myself or try to do penance or try to get God to pay attention to me or even get involved in good things. First and foremost, it was a place to be with the one who made us. It's always been God's heart. It's always been the whole goal of all of this to be with him, to tabernacle among us. But God said there's an exact pattern to the tabernacle, and I studied this out, and it's interesting. There's multiple visual reminders to, uh, uh, of, rather, of the garden. So for example, the east-facing entrance is guarded by angels. You walk into the first room, and there's a lampstand molded into the shape of a beautiful flowering tree. The stones that were used in the construction of the tabernacle and the priestly garments, um, onyx, gold, and uh, bedelium I think is the name of it, those are three that are specifically listed in Genesis 2 as being abundant in the garden. And God says, I want you to use these in the construction. And I think the point there is that every time people walked into the tabernacle, they were reminded of what they were made for. And, of course, the inner, the, the whole heart of the tabernacle is the holy of holies, the most holy place where God was we were made for him. We were made to be with him. But these images not only pointed back to the garden, reminded them of all oh, man. Remember the good old days. It points forward to the ultimate restoration of all things. It's 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 a copy of this heavenly reality that is brought down to earth. Um, because 500 years later, this is fast, but they built the temple. Um, basically the exact same shape, rooms, fixtures as the tabernacle, except it was a permanent structure. But both structures, when they were completed, it says a cloud of the glory and the presence of God filled the place. Both both of them, in the tabernacle and the temple, God responded the same way. He came and manifested his presence, not only speaking, again, to the goal, the purpose of those places, but God's eagerness to dwell with people to make his home with us. But as great as those were, as I just mentioned, the book of Hebrews tells us those structures are just shadows. Shadows of things to come, copies of heavenly realities. But when Jesus came into the world, um, and John talks about Jesus after introducing him as the word, the creator God, he says this about Jesus. This is a good Christmas verse. (laughs) The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word for dwelt is the Greek word for tabernacle. In their language, it was literally the word. He's coming soon. Uh, oh, don't be, I love that. Um, the, he tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. So the idea here is in this moment, not only is it a cloud of glory filling a tent, but the sun of glory filling creation, right? Jesus is the tabernacle, the temple, the place we go to meet with God, to be with him. Jesus actually identified himself in that way in John chapter two, if you're reading the book of John, Um, that's an awesome book to read, Jesus is standing in the temple, and he says to the religious leaders, um, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise it up, raise it up. And, and the leaders are like, what? You're crazy. This took like 50 years to build. But then John says, by the temple, Jesus meant what? His own body, himself. Jesus in that moment says, we, you don't go to a place to find God. You go to a person. You go to Jesus. He's identifying himself as the way to God. We don't find glory and life in meaning by going to church. We find glory and life and meaning by encountering Christ, which we can do here, right? When Jesus met that woman at the well, I just, I love that chapter, John chapter 4. Somehow I'm moving through John a little bit. I didn't plan on that. But she wanted to know where to worship. Jesus is at the temple in Jerusalem. And there's this cultural controversy that she wanted Jesus to choose sides. Do you say Jerusalem or do you say Samaria? Which temple do you go to to find God? And Jesus basically, like, neither. Can I say that? It's not about the place. And then he says, True worshipers will worship the Father, it's the person. In spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. The Father is seeking people who are not content to just go to a church building. He's seeking people who are not content to just get involved or to try to be a better person. He's seeking people who desperately want home with the Father. For his spirit to live in them and for them to live in him and to be one. That's what he offers us, not way down the road one day after all this mess, but here now by his spirit. But something beautiful, even as Jesus promises to live in us and to make his home with us today, he also promised that he is preparing a literal place for us, that one day we will be actually back together in in, in the flesh with him. And this is something you see in John 14. The disciples were really bothered by Jesus regular references to leaving he had to go away and they're like what where are you going and then he referenced the fact that he was going to have to basically pay a price for us to be back home and so they're bothered and in John 14 Jesus reassures them he says do not let your hearts be troubled believe in God believe also in me there was still some confusion there like we believe in God but I'm not sure yet about you In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and get you, that where I am, you may be also. That was the goal from day one. But Jesus says, I'm preparing a place. And if you've ever, anybody ever have someone over to your house, your apartment for a meal, a game time, or whatever. There's preparations to make, right? Maybe you're making some food. Um, you're cleaning up. Hopefully, a little bit, right? Um, you're 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 keeping your eye on the time. Like somebody pulls in the driveway, you're like, "Is that them?" Like that's God's heart for you. That's His heart for me. I'm preparing a place, and and I just want to tell you, Jesus isn't waiting till the last 20 minutes to stuff a bunch of dirty clothes under His bed, right? He's preparing a place that will blow our minds. And there's a lot in the Bible about this that we definitely don't have time for. Uh, but I do want to say just a few things. The question is, what is this place? What will home be like? Growing up, my answer to that question, I grew up in a Baptist church. and um, My answer to that question was floating around in clouds, playing harps, and singing hymns. None of which appealed in the least to me. And as a little kid, it actually scared me to death because I love this I love this world. I love hiking and I love changes in weather and I love going to coffee with a friend and I love feeling the ground under my feet. We're not made to float around in the clouds. And so I was very thankful to learn that this sort of Hollywood picture of heaven is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches we'll, we'll have a new earth, God will redeem creation, we'll lift the curse off of creation, no more decay. And I picture colors in the trees and the flowers that we've never seen before. We even know existed, and honestly, our eyes now couldn't even probably see them. There will be a new earth. The Bible says we'll also have glorified bodies like the resurrected body of Jesus. Uh, it's been said that humans use 10% of their brains. I think it's been proven to be a myth. But if you talk to my wife about me, I'm just saying. <laughs> there's, there's always some evidence, but... Um, How many of you, though, are excited for your body to work the way God intended it? And more, right? As the people, one thing I thought of that in this this culture that we live in, there are people who, speaking of home, don't even feel at home in their own bodies. And I mean, I just want to say, as the body of Christ, that should awaken empathy. Not irritation or judgment because people are confused and there's coming a day when that will be no more. We're gonna be at home in every sense of the word. So we'll have this new earth, this, this new body. And Revelation 21 says there's a heavenly city that God has prepared for us that will literally come down to this new earth. And in this place, we'll live and we'll laugh and we'll explore and we'll work and we'll create, I think, all to the glory of God. And that's what worship was always meant to be. Worship is never this like thing that you uh, scheduled into your calendar. This few songs that you sing. That's an expression of worship. Worship is living life in the pleasure and the presence of God. And that's going to be fully restored. This is exactly, by the way, what we see In the last chapter of the Bible, John says, The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, and on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit. There's the tree of life, by the way, that the angel's been preserving and protecting. uh, Yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, and there will be no more curse. For the throne of God and the Lamb will be there and his servants will worship him. That curse that came upon creation will be lifted. That tree that was guarded will be open for us to eat from and we will be healed from everything that has plagued us all these years. And I know every one of us could list off things whether it's lust or guilt or shame or we look at the world and we see corruption and oppression and injustice and violence and having to say goodbye to people we love which we were never made for, all of it will be gone forever. The curse will be lifted. And friends, as exciting as this will be for us, no one will be more stoked than God. (laughs) Because leading up to this, one chapter before the end of the the Bible. John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne. And I was going to like say this really loud. I'll spare you maybe. Like imagine God with like voice modulation. You remember that skit? Will Ferrell? No? Okay. It's all good. He, he can't talk quietly. Everything's loud and excited. So I just like picture God here. I heard a loud voice from the throne. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Anybody else excited about that? And, and, and I just picture God here. You, get, you ever get so excited about something, you start talking and whatever, and like, there's like this, whoa, you know, like calm down. I've got at least one kid like that, right, that just gets so stoked that he can't stop. I, and I just think that's God here. This is what I always made you for, is to be with me. The Bible says in Isaiah 25, this is one of my favorite pictures of the future. The Lord himself will prepare for all people a wonderful feast, <laughs> A delicious banquet with well-aged wine and choice meat. It's going to make Thanksgiving look like a snack, right? Except you won't pass out at the end. <laughs> <laughs> Friends, when I think of Christianity, and when people think of Christianity, it breaks my heart that they often imagine this religious system they have to like sign, in, sign up for. Rules that they are required to follow, expectations, and if they start attending a church, the fear of honestly judgment. It breaks my heart because, guys, Hebrews 12 says, when we come to Christ, the temple of the living God, the place we go to be with him, we're not coming to some religious system. We're not coming to the expectation of judgment. No, it says we have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to countless thousands of angels in joyful gathering. It's all good. And as you get to the end of the Bible, I did this like little comparison. You find many things in the end that resemble the beginning, the garden. You've got, um, uh, you know, you've got God with people. You've got the tree of life. And I was actually reminded of how many movies and stories in our culture mimic this theme of, of someone leaving home going on a journey, and often filled with pain and and difficulty, and then they come back home by the end. As soon as I started thinking about it, I thought of lots of movies. I just wanted to share a couple, though. Um, Our kids left, so they might not appreciate this one, but um, how many of you have seen Lion King? Lion King, right? And honestly, the kids might not have seen it. It's 30 years old this coming year, so, which blows my mind, uh, but here's the opening scene right here behind me um, for Lion King. I was going to play a clip, but I didn't want the jalapeno song stuck in our heads. Um, but this is the beginning, you know, there's Simba being held up. And, um, and, and, but here's the end, the last scene of the movie. Simba's grown, has a child. Same place, same scene, basically, but everything is different. Another well-known example is Lord of the Rings. Yeah, you, you start out, and uh, Gandalf and Frodo are riding down the road talking together, but then after months and months and months of painful journey, 11 hours of film if you're bored. Um, it's, it's a journey, but here's the last scene of the movie. Back home. But everything's different. Everything's different. Why? Because Frodo left home. He took on a burden no one else could take or would take. He sacrificed his comfort his convenience, literally to save the human race. Does that sound familiar? Friends, I point this out to show how ingrained this narrative is in our hearts, that even the stories of Hollywood reflect it over and over and over. We wanna be back where we were made to live. And so in the last chapter of the Bible, we do see aspects of the garden, God with people and the tree of life, but we also see undeniable reminders of what Jesus did to bring us back. Like the water of life flowing from the throne, it says, whose throne? the throne of God and of the lamb. There's no lamb in the garden. There was no sin. There was no need for sacrifice or redemption. That party where God is going to create the most amazing meal we've ever had isn't just some random generic party. In Revelation 19, it's the wedding feast of the lamb. Everywhere we look, we'll be reminded of what Jesus did to bring us back home. And as we close... I think the most beautiful part is we don't have to wait for this future reality to have our home with God. Uh, because after promising, Jesus said, I'm going to go away, um, and I'll be back. He actually then said a couple of chapters later, it's actually better that I go away. And and they're like, what? And he's like, because then I'm going to send my spirit. My spirit will not only be with you, but will live in you. And that's a really important thing to know as the church of God, that Jesus, when he was on the earth, was the temple of God. But who's the temple now? We are the temple. We are the body of Christ in whom he lives by his spirit. We are the place God has designed for the lost to encounter the living God, to experience healing and freedom and salvation, right? That's a powerful calling, I think of what Peter says, we who are in Christ are like living stones that are being built up as God's spiritual house. I was reading Psalm 1 this last week. I performed a funeral and I went through Psalm 1 and um, was struck by the parallels to the tree of life in the last chapter of the Bible. This tree of life that brings healing to the nations. But Psalm 1 makes it personal. It says, it talks about the man who, uh, what does it say? Does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on that law, he meditates day and night. And we could say someone who is anchored in relationship with Jesus, someone who wants home with God more than anything else in this world. But what does the psalmist say that person is like? Here it is. Verse three, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. That sounds like the end of Revelation. But he's saying, that's you. That's me, potentially. God has uh, his desires for us to be a tree of life presence in this world, for the healing of our our families, our coworkers, our communities, that people would see something us and say, they have something that I want and I need. As the worship team comes, um, more than anything this morning, friends, I, I, uh, I just like getting into it. I like digging in, and I, I really have a hard time every week, like, condensing and shortening. Um, but more than anything, I want you to feel hope today. I want you to feel hope that God has prepared such wondrous things for us to come, but that he's, like, finding every way along the way to make his home with us and to live with us. Life can be super hard and discouraging. I know, um... But that, I think, is something that not only we need to make space for as the church better than we maybe have in the past, space to express lament, but also Hebrews chapter 6, with the expression of what's hard, says, let us hold fast to the hope set before us. And why is that? Because hope is a steadfast anchor for our soul. And our tendency to drift, to be discouraged, to have our vision dimmed, by the difficulties of life. He says, hold on to the hope that God from day one has persistently pursued home with you and with me. And you can have that right now. You know, Revelation 3 says Jesus stands at the door and knocks. He wants to come in the home, right? And it's possible to leave him standing outside knocking. Or we can invite him in. And we can realize that just as Jesus right now is preparing a place for us, his desire is to prepare us for that place, to move in, to make us more like him, to make us more of a tree of life healing presence to the people around us. Do you want that? Would you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you for the hope that we have. I thank you that in those final words of the Bible where you invite anyone who wants to to come and drink freely of the of the water of life. I pray if there's anyone here today, Jesus, who has not received you, has not had your spirit in them, that they would today make that decision. They would respond to you knocking and open the door and say, Jesus, come in. Have your home in me. Have your way. And Jesus, even as you invite us to come, I love those very last words of the Bible where Jesus, you yourself interject and say, I am coming soon. To which we reply, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Would you say those words with me? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.